Let's start in John chapter 10 this morning. I want to teach on a new series or begin a new series this morning that we're going to entitle The Life of God. You know, in, in one sense, it's probably the most talked about thing in church. But on the other hand, it seems to me it's the least understood of every subject or any subject that uh, that the church tries to tackle. John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus said, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life. Notice Jesus is telling the reason that he came to the earth. He said, I am come that, thou might, that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Now, there are four words used in the, in the New Testament that are translated life. One word is used and it, uh, it's translated or means just human life, talking about natural life. Another word is used and it's, um, uh, and, and there's no point in me giving you the Greek words because I'd, uh, I'd have to spell them for you because I don't know how to say them. But the second word that's used to translated life, uh, it talks about a manner of life, behavior. The third word that's used for, uh, for life talks about a confused manner of life. Paul talks about this when he wrote to the Galatians and talked about his, uh, his former life in the Jews' religion. And then, uh, and then the fourth and the most often used word for life is the word zoe, Z-O-E, in the Greek. And, uh, and it always is used in reference to this life that Jesus is talking about or what we might identify as the life of God. Now, Jesus did not make up a new word. It wouldn't make sense for Jesus to make up a new word because nobody would know what he was talking about. So it's not like the word zoe is, is, uh, is invented by the scripture or invented by Jesus himself. He had to use some kind of word, some kind of term to explain spiritual truths that people would have uh, the best opportunity to understand what he's saying. That wouldn't make sense, would it? It wouldn't, uh, wouldn't do anybody any good if I was to talk about something that, that the Lord put on my heart and then invent a word for it and you not know what it means. So he had to use a, a word that was in use, commonly understood, but now he's attaching a different type of meaning or a higher level of meaning to it because the word zoe, as it's used in common writings and poetry and other, other uh, writings of their day, didn't carry the same, um, well, I don't, I don't want to use the word meaning because I've already used that enough. It didn't carry the same measure of meaning as Jesus is explaining. Jesus is very simply saying, I'm come for you to have a different kind of life than you've ever experienced before. And that's what I want to talk to you about a little bit this morning is, what is the life of God, the Zoe life? It's used a lot in the New Testament, and every time that it is used, it's always in reference to something, uh, divine life, eternal life, the life of God, or something uh, to that effect. And so it's, it's consistent throughout the, throughout the New Testament. So Jesus is saying the thief comes not but for to steal, to kill, and destroy. He's showing the, the difference, the contrast between him and the devil. The, the thief is the devil in, uh, uh, in the previous verses that he's speaking of. It, but he says, I am come that I might have life. Now notice Jesus didn't come to give you a code of conduct. And it's interesting to me that the church has majored on behavior more so than is majored on the life of God. Now why? There's another word in the New Testament, as, as I just referred to, that's talked, that uh, refers to and is used in uh, conduct or, or conversation or manner of life, and it's never used in connection with the God kind of life. Never. Yet the church seems to make your own conduct. Why? Could it be because the church doesn't understand the true meaning of what the life of God really is? I think so. 
This is the word that's used over in uh, John chapter 3. Why don't you turn back with me there for just a moment? Very famous, very familiar scripture. Favorite of many, many people. Verse. Well, let's start in verse 14. John chapter 3, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus is obviously talking about his crucifixion and the manner of death that he would die. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life, this word life is zoe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Zoe. Now, most of the church, it seems to me, you judge it for yourself, but it seems to me most of the church and most of the Christians that I know of look at the life of God as being eternal life, and that's certainly accurate, that's certainly true, but the eternal is the only thing that they hear out of life. In other words, they think that it's going to be some kind of measure of life, some kind of existence that we're going to have when we get to heaven. But the Bible says just the opposite. Now, it's interesting that John, the Gospel of John, talks more about life than any of the other Gospel writers. He refers to more of the things that Jesus said about life than any of the other Gospel writers. And the letters that he wrote to the church, particularly the first letter that he wrote to the church, First John, has more to do with life than any other letter written to the church. I mean, he majors on it. And I think there's a reason for that. I think a lot of it has to do with the timing of when these books were written. John's letters to the church and his gospel were the last letters written to the church with the possible exception of Revelation, the book of Revelation. All of these were written at the very end of John's life. And John lived, we know for certainty that John lived to a great old age, somewhere in his mid-90s perhaps. And he was the last of the apostles that was alive. He was the last of any of the gospel writers or any of the, uh, uh, the, the New Testament writers that were alive when he wrote this. I mean, John is the guy when he writes these letters. When he writes his, the gospel that bears his name, and when he writes the letters, to, the epistles to the church, along with the revelation of Jesus in the end time events, he's the last guy around, and everybody knows he was the one that was with Jesus and one of the closest ones to Jesus. And as a result, these things are gold because he was almost a generation later, 30-some-odd years later than the last letter that Paul wrote to the church. So you got the gospels. You've got the, you've got the letters that Paul wrote to the church. You've got the letters that James wrote to the church. James was one of the earlier writers. And so you've got all of the gospels and all of the letters written to the church. And then all of a sudden James comes on at the end of his life and he says, here's what you need to know about my experience with Jesus, my time with him, about the life of God and about the things that we have because Jesus went to the cross and was raised from the dead. And by the way, here's what's going to happen at the end. And as a result, he focuses on life. Now, we know some things about John, very interesting in my opinion about John. One of the things that we know with, uh, know is that he had a lot of enemies, a lot of governmental, you know, kings type leaders, uh, that were against him because of his, uh, preaching of Jesus and, and the, the very fact that he was as old as he was and, and, uh, uh, he was, he may have been the original icon in his day. I mean, everybody looked at him and, and heard of him and, and, uh, revered him almost. And as a result, it created a problem with some of the people that, uh, uh, that were trying to be revered by the people themselves. Some of the governmental leaders, authorities and such. And so they tried to get rid of him and they couldn't. They tried to kill him and they couldn't. Now folks, this is not, this message this morning is not supposed to be about John. So forgive me for a minute, but 
John understood some things about the life of God. John wrote to the church. He said, we know that we pass from death unto life. Talking about the life of God. Zoe, talking about eternal life. He said, we know we have eternal life now. John understood some things, and as a result, it not only prolonged his life, but it created a situation where he was able to share Jesus in a in a powerful way like maybe nobody else ever has in the history of the world. There was a king that tried to boil John in oil, and he wouldn't die. And he talked about the life of God. I wonder if he knew something we don't know. I wonder if he had an understanding of some things that we don't know. Now, let's look back at the beginning. Jesus said, as we started in John chapter 10, the thief comes not but for to kill, to steal, and to destroy. In the previous verses in John chapter 10, he talks about the thief comes up in a different way. He said the shepherd comes in through the sheepfold and so forth. He's talking about himself versus the devil, the contrast between himself and the devil. He said very simply, the devil intruded into a creation that he had nothing to do with. Talking about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He said the devil intruded into a creation that he had no part of, had nothing to do with, and he stole, literally stole authority from Adam and Eve. He did it by talking them into, talking her into. Adam, the Bible says, has his eyes wide open. You know, so he's, I think he bears a greater responsibility than, than she did. But nevertheless, he stood by and let this stuff happen. And as a result, it says that man's eyes were open and he found that he was naked and ashamed. He saw that he was naked and he was ashamed. Well, he wasn't any more naked after he sinned than he was before he sinned, so the nakedness can't be a problem. What was the issue? The issue was the life of God departed from him. Now, you remember how Adam and Eve were created. Adam was formed from the dust of the earth. God literally made what would look like a body, and he breathed into him the breath of life. Well, what did he give to him? When he breathed on him, what did he give to him? Well, whatever it was, was of himself because it came through his breath. Is there anything that we could identify as having been uh, as having been the source of Adam's creation other than the spirit of God himself? Wouldn't that be what it meant when he breathed into him? He breathed the essence of himself. God is a spirit, Jesus said in John 4, 24. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So if God breathed into him, he breathed himself into him, which means he breathed the spirit of God into Adam. And as a result, what would Adam be? Well, we know he would be everything that God created and formed of him uh, from the dust of the earth. So we know what he would be physically. He would be physically what we are, just the same as we are, but within the real him. See, he, the body was there before any life was in it. So you can't say Adam is is just a physical being because the physical body of Adam was there before there was ever any life placed within it. No, the thing that made Adam a living soul, as the King James says, or a living being was the fact that he became, like God himself, a spirit being. And that spirit being was the character and the nature of God himself. God didn't put Adam in school immediately. He didn't have to take him to class. And he said, all right, now every morning at 8 o'clock, meet me here by the river. I'm going to create something called a blackboard. And I'm going to teach you about the earth. No, Adam instantly had an intellect that far surpassed anything that we know of. In that he was able to name the animals. He understood the workings of the earth. How did he know? How did he have that intellect? How did he have that kind of insight? How did the guy know? 
there must be something about the character and the nature of God, the very essence of God, the spirit of God from within that affects your intellect or has an impact on your intellect. The thing that's fascinating to me, and I cannot get away from this, God keeps talking to me about this over and over again, is that Adam's source of intellect, his source of knowledge, was from his spirit. And it was only after he fell, that's when he started learning how the world world works in a fallen state. And it took him 930 years to figure it out, until death took him. It also took 930 years for death to overtake, physical death to overtake the life of God that he started with. What a measure of life that must have been. Well, this is what Jesus is talking about when he said the thief comes up some other way. Jesus is saying, I came as the good shepherd. In other words, I entered into the creation that I had something to do with because I'm the one that created it. I came to earth as a human being, as a man. I laid aside my heavenly power and glory and came to the earth as a man, a spirit being, but a man nonetheless. No less God, but all man. And that's why he talks about putting forth his sheep and his sheep hearing his, his voice and knowing his voice. That's what he's talking about because that life is what was lost in the Garden of Eden. Romans 5.12 says it this way. He says, for if by one man's sin, Adam's death passed upon all men, sin entered in and death passed upon all men. So spiritual death swallowed up life. It took a long time to overtake it. It had an instant impact, but it took a long time, even in Adam, for that spiritual death to overtake the life of God that was in him. That life of God was the eternal life that he started with. And the, the, the measure of that life of God is staggering. John 1, 4 says this. It says, in him, talking about Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. I don't think a lot of commentators understand what that's talking about. Because that life has to do with development. That life being the light of men has to do with the development of men. There's something that you need to realize. And this is a historical fact. Every revolution, whether it's been an intellectual revolution, whether it's been a renaissance of of art and creative works, or whether it's been an industrial revolution or something like that, every one of those on the face of the earth in the history of mankind has always come one generation after that people receive the gospel of Jesus. The great German Renaissance took place one generation after Luther preaching on the new birth. The Industrial Revolution in England took place after the Wesleyan and the Whitfield revivals. In other words, you cannot find one heathen nation that's ever had any great impact as far as creative events or creative works or inventors or inventions or anything like that, poetic works, cultural works, nothing from heathen nations. They've all come from nations at least, or I should say within one generation of having received the gospel of Jesus. In other words, there is a historical precedent that creativity, man's creativity is greatly and directly impacted by receiving the life of God. Now, folks, we see it in the Bible, but not everybody wants to accept the Bible testimony. Daniel chapter 1, for example, tells us the story of four Jewish young men that were taken captive when Israel was overtaken by Babylon. Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they were placed as, and it wasn't just them, it was all the conquered nations. This was the way that Nebuchadnezzar operated. 
they would be taken and they would be put in the king's palace or in kind of a school to learn the ways of, of Babylon so that they could then be used later on after their loyalty to, to the king was established. They could then be used as not only advisors that would kind of go between them and uh, the king and the people that were conquered and sometimes used and set up in positions as rulers so that the people wouldn't rebel against their own guy, that type of thing. And so these uh, these four kids were taken, and for a period of three years, they were supposed to be in this school. And after the three years, that's when the king would come and examine them themselves. Now, Daniel decided that since the, the food that, the, that was coming from the king's palace and the king's house was uh, uh, was against the law of Moses, the four guys came together. I guess Daniel was the spokesman. And Daniel went to the dean of the college, and they all had great favor with this guy already. And Daniel said, we don't want to eat the king's food because this is this violates our conscience. It violates the law of Moses that we grew up with. And so we want to eat something that doesn't violate the law that we've been taught. And the dean of the, the college kind of guy, he, he said, you know, you're going to get me in trouble because the king's food is the best food. And you're going to, not going to look as healthy as the other guys. And because of that, then the king's going to take off my head. And so Daniel says, well, OK, let's try it for three weeks. And if after the end of three weeks, you know, it's, it, it looks to you like it's not going well, then we'll go back to whatever you say. Well, after three weeks, they looked better and, and fatter and fairer in appearance than anything else. So he, he let them continue it for the rest of the time in the school. Now, in Daniel chapter 1, about verse 30, somewhere around there, it says at the end of those three years, the king found these four guys wiser than all of the astrologers and magicians and all the advisors that he had by ten Ten times wiser. Now, folks, tell me something. These guys weren't even born again. Tell me what made them ten times better than everybody else. There's only one thing that the Bible indicates was the difference between them and everybody else in the school, whoever they might have been, and that was that they put the word of God first. Now, remember what Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 63. He said, the words that I speak unto you, they are, they are spirit and they are life, zoe. In other words, he said the life of God is put in practice in your life, applied in your life through the word of God. That didn't just start when Jesus came to the earth. The word of God has always been the life of God in application. So when these four Hebrew children, young men, start acting on the word, doing what the word says, no matter what everybody else does, but start doing what the word says to do and operating according to the word and putting it first in their lives, it made them ten times wiser than everybody else in the best training and best education and best schooling and all that other kind of stuff that there is. In other words, the life of God applied. And again, they didn't even have it from the inside. But the life of God applied just through putting the word first place in their lives made them ten times more wise, ten times more creative, ten times more able. It gave them an ability that nobody else had. And the king was astonished. Everybody was amazed. Of course, the king credited it to the, to the great job that the dean of the college was doing and all that kind of stuff, I'm sure. He has not yet come to realize it was God, but in all four of those people's lives, he did. He came to know that it was God and the hand of God and the favor of God upon them. There's a creative ability to the life of God. Well, Pastor Mike, if that's true, why don't we operate in it? Because people don't believe in it. Because they don't access it because they don't have faith in it. Turn with me over to John chapter 5. Let me show you something else Jesus said about this life. 
John chapter 5 is talking about the guy that was healed in the pool of Bethesda. Uh, let's start reading verse 14. I want to get the context of this. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. This is after the guy was uh, was healed. He didn't know who it was that, that did it for him and comes across Jesus later on. Jesus found him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. Now, here's a man that was crippled from his birth. He, he, there was no way for him to be healed. It was a miraculous event that, that nobody could explain, nobody could uh, uh, could discount. And now Jesus says, okay, I'm the guy. Put God first. Keep God first in your life. Verse 15, the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. They'd asked him before, questioned him about it before, and he said, I don't know who it was. Some guy told me to take up my bed and walk, and I did, and it worked. I don't know. Now I know. Here's who it was. Therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answering said unto them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Now the word hitherto means even now. In other words, he's saying, here's the reason why this guy was healed. Here's the reason why this miracle of healing took place. Because my father is still at work, and I'm working too. He credits it to the power of God, and he says, I'm working hand in hand with God. Therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill him because he had not only broken the Sabbath, but also said God was his father, making himself equal with God. You can't make these guys happy. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the father do. Now, the word seeth means to look upon. In other words, he says, the only thing I can do is what I look upon my father doing. If we're supposed to follow Jesus' example, how are we supposed to look upon what God does? You're going to see that Jesus is the example. We're supposed to look on what Jesus did, who looked upon what the Father did, and do the same stuff he did. And he's going to tell us how we can. For the Father loveth the Son and showeth... Did I finish verse 19? Let me read that again. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. No question Jesus is saying the Father and I are working hand in hand. As far as the Jews are concerned, that's him making himself equal with God, and that's blasphemy in their eyes. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all the things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. Now get this, he's saying, whatever God shows me, that's what I'm going to do, and he's going to do even bigger stuff, and you're going to be amazed. You think you're having a hard time now, you just wait. For as the Father raises up the dead and quickens them, the word quicken means to make alive, as the Father makes dead people alive, even so the Son quickens or makes alive whom he will. For the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honors not the Son, honors not the Father which has sent him. Now notice verse 24. Here's the context. The context he's talking about is doing miracle works, being equal with God. Not equal from the standpoint, uh, not from our standpoint, as we would be equal with God, uh, coexistent and co-equal with the creator of the universe, but equal because of something that God imparts to us. Jesus is going to say there is something that I have that the Father has that makes me equal with him. 
Now, you may not see it and you may not recognize it because I look like just every other guy. But there's a difference. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth my word or heareth my word and believeth on him that has sent me has everlasting life. Zoe, life of God. Now, notice Jesus is not talking about this in context with some kind of heavenly experience. Jesus is talking about something that's happened here on the earth, and he equates that with everlasting life. In other words, folks, eternal life doesn't start when you get to heaven. If you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, you've got that eternal life now. What are you waiting for eternity to start accessing and using the benefits of that life for? Why wait? It's yours now. You're not going to have a different kind of life when you get to heaven than you have now. You won't have an enemy. And so you won't have anything to use the power of God toward. But you're not going to have a different life then. You remember when Paul said, I knew a man in Christ, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. Such a one was caught up into the third heaven and heard things that are not lawful. King James says lawful literally says, I don't know how to explain or describe things that I heard and saw. How could Paul not tell if he was in the body or out of the body? If being in heaven and if eternal life is something that when we get to heaven is going to be so much different than what we have now, how could he not tell? Why would Paul not say such a one was caught up into the third heaven and wow, were things different then? Well, he said, whether in the body or out of the body, I can't tell. Why? Because he's the same in the body as he is out of the body because he is the man on the inside. The spirit of man doesn't change. Are you out there? I can hear rusty gears turning. Good. Verse 24 again. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that has sent me hath everlasting life. Zoe, the life of God. And shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. When do you pass from death unto the life of God? When? When you make Jesus the Lord of your life. Not when your physical body perishes. Folks, if God needs your physical body to perish for you to enter into everlasting life, eternal life, then the work of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, was not sufficient to get it done. What Jesus accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection needs no help from physical death to be accomplished. Hello? If you're thinking your body is your problem, you're wrong. Your body's not your problem. The problem is between your ears. The problem is wrong thinking. The problem is a lack of understanding of who you really are because of what Jesus really did. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, Zoe, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life, Zoe. Verse 25, verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is. When the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Now, I think he's talking about a couple of things. One thing I think he's talking specifically about are those who have died and gone on to Abraham's bosom. I think he's saying the time is very short. We're right on the edge of it. When I'll preach to those who are led, who are captive in Abraham's bosom because they died before I came to the earth. They died before salvation was available, but they believed in the promise through keeping the law of Moses. Bible says Jesus led captivity captive and went to heaven. He preached to those saints in prison. I think that's part of what he's talking about there. There may be other things as well, but I believe that's a big part of it. 
Verse 26, for as the father hath life, Zoe in himself, so has he given to the son to have Zoe in himself. Notice what Jesus is saying. And the context is, here's how I do miraculous works. Here's how I did the miracle of healing that you're all bothered about because it happened on the Sabbath day. Because the same kind of life God has is the life that I have in me. Now, folks, is he talking about just longevity? See, we think of eternal life as just being a long time, never-ending time. Is that what Jesus is talking about? Is that all eternal life is? If that's all it is, how was he able to do the miracles? And that's the context of him talking about the, having the same kind of life that God has in himself. We know Jesus isn't going to live forever. Jesus only lives to about age 33 because that's when he makes a sacrifice for us. Now, if he didn't make the sacrifice, he would have lived forever. But what good would that have done you and me? If Jesus was still alive on the earth today and had lived for those 2,000 years in between, and now he's still alive, we'd be able to look at him and say, wow, he's the son of God. But how's that going to help you? Folks, I hate to be completely selfish about this, but... I don't want to go to hell. I mean, I'm really, really against it. And so if Jesus was just here on the earth to show us that he's doing stuff, eh, that would cause us to know there's a heavenly father. And maybe that would increase our torment in hell to know that there was a real heavenly father. But that's not why Jesus came. Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Now we're starting to see a little bit of what that life is. That life produces miracles. It's a supernatural life. It's a miraculous life. It's a life that Jesus said is the same quality of life as God himself. Now, I don't even know how to begin to go about describing that. Quality of life. You talk about God and start start talking about quality of life. It almost cheapens it to try to give characteristics of it. At least in my thinking. Wouldn't you agree? Yet Jesus is saying, I've got the same life that the Father has. Now, folks, Jesus has always had this life. He was a spirit being before he came to the earth. This is the difference between him and Satan. Satan came as a thief. He didn't take on flesh. Jesus did. It's a whole lot easier, would have been a whole lot easier for Jesus to come to the earth without a fleshly body. Been easy for Jesus, and I believe he did numerous times in the Old Testament. I believe it was Jesus that appeared to Moses. I believe it was Jesus that appeared to Abraham. I believe it was Jesus who is the creator of all things. I believe it was him who appeared over and over and over again. It's Jesus is always the agent of God that appears to man. So I think it was him. And it was a whole lot easier for Jesus just to show up under the old covenant and talk to Abraham and say, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you his children and, you know, we're... In a covenant now, and by the way, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and, you know, other stuff. He didn't have the difficulty of the human existence that way. But he couldn't be the sacrifice for mankind that way either. I'm come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Now, that part really throws me. I, I even hesitate to get over into that. How do you have more abundant Life of God. How can you have more abundant life of God? 
We see in the life of God, we see in Jesus' life that the life of God caused him to conquer the physical circumstances. We see that it caused him to overcome physical laws. He walked in the water, he calmed the storm, multiplied loaves and fishes, caused leprosy to disappear. That's a pretty good list if we don't go any further. He raised the dead, raised Lazarus from the dead. Not bad. Jesus said the reason that he did all these things because he has the same quality of life, the same characteristic of life, the same identical life as God the Father himself has. Jesus said, I came that you might have that life. I almost wish you'd stop there because that part I get. But to have it more abundantly? I think Jesus said some things just for us to, for our heads to just go tilt. Again, verse 26, for as the father had life in himself, so has he given to the son to have life, Zoe, in himself. Now turn with me over to 1 John. Let's see some other things that John said. 1 John, let's start in chapter 5. And we'll begin reading in maybe verse 11, somewhere around there. And this is the record that God has given to us. I'm sorry, let me read that again. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, Zoe. And this life, Zoe, is in his son. Verse 12, he that hath the son hath Zoe. And he that hath not the son hath not Zoe, the life of God. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, Zoe. Now, notice what John is saying. Again, this is at the end of his life, one of the last things that that happens, that we have record of at least, in his life. He's certainly in his 90s when he writes this. Sixty years have gone by since Jesus was raised from the dead. He's been walking as a Christian for 60 years, plus he had a couple, three, three years or so before that when he was walking with Jesus and seeing things firsthand. Sixty years have passed since Jesus breathed on him along with the others, the, the other 11 in the upper room, or the 10 that were there. Thomas wasn't. And said, receive the Holy Ghost. And his life changed. Now, it's interesting to me that in John chapter 20, Jesus breathed on the disciples just like God breathed into Adam. God meaning, I think it was Jesus who was the creator. Just like Jesus breathed into Adam some 4,000 years before. In other words, he imparted something of himself into the apostles who were the first ones to be saved, just like he imparted something of himself into Adam, which caused Adam to be a living soul. So that time has passed, and John says, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have, not going to have, not that you have a hope of, but that you have eternal life, Zoe. Same life you're going to have in heaven is what you have now. And that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Now, notice verses 14 and 15. He goes along talking about what is the the characteristic or one result of knowing that you have eternal life, the life of God. And this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, folks, without getting into a long discussion about his will, his word is his will. And, And for my benefit, 
One thing that helped me, especially years ago, it helped me to, to, to interpose that or substitute that. This is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his word, he hears us. Now, there are things about God's will, particularly for your life, specifically for your life, that go beyond what the word says. For example, the Bible doesn't tell you whether or not you should move to one city or another city. So there are things about the will of God for you personally that go beyond the word. But if most people would just stick with praying the word, they'd be in good shape. That would solve most of their problems. There still might be a thing or two that you'd have to ask God and get specific direction about. But those things are few and far between in comparison. So this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, meaning his word, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, what's the key to knowing that he hears you? Asking according to the word. In other words, pray the word and you know he hears you. And if you know that he hears you, in other words, and if you pray the word, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. In other words, he's saying the key to getting your prayers answered is to pray the word. Because God always hears his word, and all he has to do is hear you, and he'll answer you. So notice that he's talking about in connection with the life of God, he's talking about unlimited prayer potential. Turn back with me to chapter 4. Now here he doesn't use the word life, but you can see that he's talking about it. Well, maybe get back to verse 3 or chapter 3. Verse 14, we know that we pass from death into life because we love the brethren. The word life there is the word zoe. We know that we pass from death into zoe, spiritual death unto eternal life, because we love the brethren. In other words, the first and telltale sign that a person receives the life of God, eternal life within them, is their nature changes from hatred to love. First thing you see in the Bible, certainly wasn't the first thing that happened, but the first thing that we have record of is after the fall of Adam and Eve, they have Cain and Abel, and one of them is a murderer. He becomes a murderer because he doesn't like how things go. Things don't go his way, so he murders his brother. So what's the first thing the Bible indicates to us, and I think this is for a reason, I don't think it's accidental, the first thing the Bible tells us is that murder was the cause of spiritual death coming upon the earth. Or the result, I, didn't, I said cause, I should have said result. Murder was the result, one of the first things that happens, the first thing literally, that happens as a result of spiritual death entering in upon mankind. The thief intruding into the creation and bringing spiritual death with him. Man went from the love of God, the nature of God, which is love, to murder. We know that we pass from death to life, spiritual life, eternal life, life of God. Because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Notice verse 15. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life, Zoe, abiding in him. What's he saying? He's saying the contrast to, to, to show the Bible perspective, the contrast between eternal life and the way that the world operated since Adam came onto the scene before Jesus made a way for mankind to reunite with God was murder, hatred. That's the first thing that changes in the life of a person that comes to know God. Now, chapter 4, verse 4. You are of God, little children. Now, who's he talking to? He's talking to people that have received the life of God. He's talking to people that have received. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. We means the people that are reading, doesn't it? Along with him. So he says, you 
who have received eternal life are of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. If you back up to the preceding verses of chapter 4, you'll find out the, the ones that he's talking about being greater than are the devil and his, and, uh, his uh, evil spirits, demonic spirits, and so forth that are operating in the world. Now, let me ask you a question. What man is equal to Satan? When it comes to human ability versus Satan's ability, who's equal? Nobody. When it comes to knowledge, what human being would be equal to Satan as far as knowledge is concerned, and that knowledge that Satan has would certainly enable him to be the deceiver? Who can equal that? Nobody on their own. But notice what he says happens when the life of God comes in you. When the life of God changes you, Satan becomes no match for you. No wonder Jesus said all things are possible to him that believes. All things are possible to him that believes. Jesus did miracles and said it's because of the life of God. And by the way, I came to bring that to you. John, who seems to walk in this life of God to a great degree, just from what we know from history, if we didn't even have his writings, just from what we know from history, he seemed to have access and, and, uh, he seemed to, uh, he seemed to access and have a great deal of information about this life of God and what it would do. Preserved his mortal life, his physical life, his physical being. Folks, this life of God that you have does a lot more than you're giving it credit for. And I, I, and and on the other side, the reverse side, if Jesus just came for us to plod and, and trudge our way through life, doing the best we can as human beings, was that worthy of the life of the Son of God? Not in my thinking. If he left us here just to struggle with stuff, like we would whether we were saved or not, was that really worth and worthy of the Son of God himself? coming to the earth and dying a horrible death, both physically and spiritually? Not in my thinking. Jesus said, I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And that life is the light of men. That life is creative ability. You have more creative ability in you than you have any idea of. Well, how do we access that, Pastor Mike? By faith. Same way you access all the things of God. You begin to confess what the Bible says about you. I remember Brother Hagin talking about that story in Daniel. Um, I guess I ought to give you a little background on Brother Hagin. He was born with a deformed heart. He was born with blood disease. Had a lot of terminal issues. And the doctors looked at him and said, there's no way this kid can live past 16 years of age. Well, as a result, uh, the circulation was so poor in his body that uh, the few years that he did go to school and was able to go to school before the physical afflictions overtook him and, and caused him to be bedfast, he was a horrible student, terrible student. His mind just didn't work right. They uh, considered at one time putting him in some kind of gifted program. Well, we call it gifted nowadays, remedial program. Uh, back then, people used to call folks retarded. And there was a real question 
with the school officials on whether or not Brother Hagen was retarded. And then they took his physical condition into to account, and the doctor said, well, it's the blood flow and lack of circulation and stuff. His mind just doesn't get the oxygen that it should because his, his heart's not pumping right and not working right and so forth. And so bottom line was he was just a horrible student. But after he received the life of God and after he received his healing, he started going back to school, and he never made anything less than a straight-A report card. And the same teachers in this small town that knew him before and knew him afterwards couldn't understand it. They made a study of him. And one thing that he did, one thing Brother Hagin said that he did, was that he saw that story in Daniel, and he began confessing that. He began confessing that he was ten times wiser than everybody in the the class. Then he started confessing that he was ten times wiser than the teachers. And over a period of time, it wasn't an instant, but over a, a relatively short period of time, he developed a, what he called a photographic memory. He could read a chapter in a history book, close the book, never having seen it before, close the book, stand up and repeat it word for word. The teachers would test him on this. Where did that come from? He didn't have it before. He didn't have the capacity of it before. And folks, don't get me wrong. Don't think that his heart began working perfectly and never had another problem after he received his healing. He had a couple of years where he still struggled with some of the same heart symptoms that he had that put him, made him bedfast to begin with. He had to walk out his healing. It was not an instant healing. There was an instant impact when he received his healing. But it was a couple of years before everything really started working right where the doctor said, we can't see any trace of the problem that used to exist. And so he's going back to school with the creative ability of God having had an impact and, and, and increase the effectiveness of his mental faculties many, many fold. I don't know how, how to put a, a, a percentage on it, but maybe even a hundred percent, maybe more. Even while his heart's still having problems, even while there's still the same problem with the circulation and the blood flow. So it wasn't just a physical change. There was something that happened from within. That gave him a greater mental acumen or ability than he had before. Well, if it's not physical and the only thing that changed was his experience with God, we have to credit it, therefore, to the life of God within him. Well, Brother Hagin wasn't God's favorite. He didn't love Brother Hagin any more than he loves you and me. So if it worked for him, it'll work for you, too, won't it? Well, sure it will. But what did he do to make it work? He began confessing. He saw it. He began confessing the truth of the word for himself. He began to say that the word, what the word of God said happened to others was working for him. And I, in my opinion, I think he even had an advantage over the four children in Daniel because they weren't born again. He was. Bible says of wisdom in Proverbs, it says of wisdom. This is just not for born-again people. This was just for people that acted on the law of Moses. It says, I dwell with the knowledge of witty inventions. In other words, there's a creative ability to putting the Word of God first place in your life. Folks, i got to tell you something. I believe that Christians ought to have a leg up on the world. I think the world ought to be looking at the church saying, what is it about those people? When the Old Testament says that God would make the enemies of Israel jealous, could this not be part of it? Should it not be part of it? I believe we knew what the life of God was 
all about, it would be. You have eternal life now. You know something I woke up the other morning? Well, it's been several weeks ago now, but I woke up the other morning and, uh, and sometimes it works this way with me. You know, it's, it's kind of few and far between, maybe once a year, maybe a couple of times a year at the most. But sometimes just as I wake up, I'll hear the voice of God. Just bang. There it is. And it's, it's right there in between sleep and awake. You know what I mean? And it's, and it's like, once you hear it, it's like, oh, say that again. And it's gone. And it's like you want to pause everything and just stay there for a second. Because just for that moment, just that moment, it's like, Oh, let me go back there. Lord, I'll go back to sleep. Wake me up again. Doesn't work. Wish I could make it happen, but I haven't found out how to do that yet. But, oh, when it happens, I love when it happens. And I've never had it happen that hasn't been something that, that sticks with me and impacts me and, and really makes a difference over a long term. And I heard these words. You're possessed of the Spirit of God. But now you may think, well, okay, that's, Pastor Mike, I thought you were going to tell us something deep. Stop and think about it for a minute. Think about the people that Jesus came across that were demon-possessed. Look at the superhuman strength of the madman of Gadara in Luke chapter 5. They tried to bind him with chains. He broke those chains. How does a guy break chains? How does that work? Sounds superhuman to me, doesn't it to you? I mean, the average guy doesn't break chains. But somebody that was in, uh, influenced by and possessed by the devil was able to break chains and fetters and stuff like that that they had him bound with. Nobody could tame this guy. Well, what would it be for somebody to be possessed with the Holy Spirit? Not for destructive purposes like the devil always operates in, but for good. Think about the life of God that would be shown by somebody that recognized and confessed and believed for and accessed being possessed by the Holy Spirit. Now think about what the Bible says. The Bible says that you're born again by the Spirit of God, and those of you that are filled with the Spirit, that means you're filled to overflowing. That means you're possessed of the Holy Spirit. Now the devil and the Holy Spirit operate differently. The devil forces you against his will, against your will. The Holy Spirit will never usurp your will. It's always according to what you will have done and what you will operate in because the Holy Spirit's a gentleman. He doesn't force anybody, but he enables. That means he enables you to walk in love. That means he enables you to walk in forgiveness. I wish I had a dollar for everybody that says, Pastor Mike, I just can't forgive. I could have retired a long, long, long time ago. I wouldn't, but I could. Because, see, this idea that people have is that forgiveness comes only when I feel a certain way. But if you're possessed of the Holy Spirit, you can forgive like God forgives. The Bible says Christ died for the ungodly. The Bible says God forgave you when you didn't deserve it. That means you can forgive because you're possessed of the Spirit of God. You can forgive others who don't deserve it, who don't even want it, who don't even have any plan to stop doing things wrong to you. But if you're possessed of the Holy Spirit, you can walk in love to that degree. If you're possessed of the Holy Spirit, you'd be able to walk in wisdom to a supernatural degree too, wouldn't you? One of the works of the Holy Spirit is that he'll show you things to come. Well, if you're possessed of the Holy Spirit, you get to see the future. Oh, that's what I want, Pastor Mike. 
Show me what the stock market is going to do tomorrow. Well, let's start with other things first. Let's start with the important stuff first. Let's start with how you can help your brother tomorrow who's going to be in a tragedy. Let's start with other things, eternal things first. And then the side things, like riches and honor and glory and stuff like that, God adds that in. That's just a benefit, fringe benefit. You're possessed of the Spirit of God. You know, ever since then, I've been looking at myself differently. Rather than looking at my weaknesses and looking at my failures and looking at things that I feel inadequate. And folks, we all do. Everybody does. Everybody feels at some time or another like they're not up to the task or not up to the challenge or whatever the case is, whatever they're facing. Everybody feels like they come up short. I don't care how strong or how bold or how whatever some guy acts. They put their pants on one leg at a time the same way that you do and they have the same stuff to deal with that you do. Everybody does. But now when I'm tempted to go there or tempted to, to accept those things, now I stop myself and say, well, that would be true from a natural standpoint. I am inadequate from a natural standpoint, but I'm possessed of the Spirit of God. And greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. I wonder if we just got a hold of that greater is he that's in me part. What would that do to the world? If not now, when? If we're waiting to be greater than anything in the world when we get to heaven, you won't need it then. You won't have an enemy. There'll be no opposition. You'll have the same life of God then. You'll have the same unlimited power of God then too. But what are you going to do? Make a new street in heaven? Now's the time to use it. Now's the time to utilize it. I think one of the greatest tragedies, one of the reasons that God will have to wipe away every tear in heaven, in heaven, is that people will see missed opportunities here on the earth. And it'll break their heart. I don't want to be one of those people. I want to be one of those that God doesn't have to wipe away any tears. But instead says, well done, good and faithful servant. What better way than to realize the, the greatness of the life of God within us now? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you. The greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came, that we might have life. And that we might have it more abundantly. Holy Spirit, open our eyes like never before to the greatness of the life of God within us. Now, before we dismiss this morning with every head bowed and every eye closed, please. If you're here this morning and would say, Pastor Mike, you're talking about the life of God that comes into us. And when we make Jesus the Lord of our lives, I've never done that. I don't know that I've ever done that. I can't point to a time where I can say for sure that I've ever asked Jesus. To be my Lord and Savior. If that's the case for you. It's a very simple thing to do. It's not an emotional decision. It's just simply taking God at his word. And the word of God says simply this. That if you're willing to believe. Your choice. But if you're willing to believe. That God sent his son to the earth. To die for your sins. And that he raised him from the dead. So that you could live again. If you're willing to believe that. And there, and secondly, to confess that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. It's the confession of your faith, your belief, that brings you into the family of God. It's not a special prayer that I pray or anybody else prays. It's you believing God just the way he said it. So if you're here this morning and say, Pastor Mike, I want you to lead me in that prayer so that I can make Jesus the Lord of our lives. 
so that I can make Jesus my Lord and Savior once and for all. To know that I have the life of God here on the earth and that when this life is over, I'll spend eternity in heaven with him. If that's your desire, I'm going to ask you with heads, and bow, heads bowed and eyes closed just to lift your hand just real quickly. You can put it right up. Once we see who we're going to pray for, then you can put it right back down. Anyone, anywhere. Pray for me, Pastor Mike. I want to make Jesus my Lord and Savior. Anyone? All right, I'll count that as all of us being in the family of God. Praise the Lord. Let's all stand together then. Before we dismiss this morning, I want to ask you to do something, and that is close your eyes and lift your hands toward heaven and just thank him that you have eternal life now. That there's nothing that's going to happen in heaven for you that's going to make you any different than what you have now. No greater power in heaven than the power you have now. No greater ability then than now. Jesus came that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. You have that now. Thank you, Father, for the abundant life. Thank you for the supernatural life of God, the supernatural power of God. Thank you, Father, for the miraculous that takes place in our lives. Holy Spirit, we thank you for possessing us, not to control us or force us against our will, but to enable us and help us as we yield our will to yours. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for showing us things to come. Thank you for revealing that which is hidden. Thank you for making us ten times wiser than those that are unsaved around us. Thank you for the creative ability of God that helps us in our jobs, in our families, and in what you've called us to do. We thank you, Lord, for the divine life of God, eternal life that's ours now. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen.